Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, and in this episode, we have Eric Martell, who is the founder at Pair Commerce. Pair simplifies retail marketing by connecting CPG advertisements directly with retailers. And Eric is also a venture partner at Generator, a nationally ranked accelerator with over 70 investments to date. He's also the managing director of Generator in Minnesota until September 2018. And prior to Generator, he co-founded Eat Street, a company that powers online ordering for 15,000 plus restaurants nationwide. They've raised over $40 million to date and have grown to 150 employees. Eric, it's fair to say, has a ton of startup experience, which is why I was so excited to have him on. I've also known Eric since middle school, funny enough, and we reconnected again. And bringing that experience on the fundraising front, on growing a company, on problem solving, all of this we have in this episode. So excited for you to listen. As always, the show notes are at justgogrind.com slash podcast. You can support the show by leaving a rating and a review. Would really appreciate that. And finally, The Weekly Grind newsletter that comes out every Friday with tips, tools, and strategies for growing a business as well as some cool companies I find every week can be found at justgogrind.com slash newsletter. Without further ado, here is Eric Martel, the founder of Pair Commerce. Eric, welcome to the show. Hey, Justin, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, and there's a lot to discuss, obviously, with the new company, with, with Pair Commerce. Then you have Generator, we have Eat Street. I want to get to all of that. But to start with, with Pair Commerce, for people who aren't familiar, what is Pair Commerce? Yeah, so Pair Commerce is kind of the first of its kind sort of product um, that connects uh, digital ads run by companies that make physical products. Think like Procter & Gamble, for instance, and all of their products. Um, to uh, retailers that actually sell their products. So basically, we link deep into shopping carts. We have deep levels of integration to make the ads link directly to a shopping experience uh, for the yep. retailers that sell their products. That's awesome. And with, with, this, with this company then, how did this get started? Where did the idea for a pair of commerce come from? Yeah, well, I mean, like most good things in my life, I'd say that it uh, stemmed from a conversation that I had with my girlfriend. And uh, <laughs> my, my girlfriend uh, ran marketing uh, for a uh, consumer packaged goods company uh, for several years. And when she joined the company, the first thing that they did was checked out, uh, or what she did, I should say, is audited the marketing practices that they were using to build awareness and get more people to buy their products. They made like turkey burgers. They made uh, different, uh, basically turkey meat products. And uh, they were spending a lot of money on Instagram and Facebook. And uh, she got in there and saw, hey, uh, you know, these ads are great, but we don't sell these products directly to real human beings. Because if we did, it would require putting those products like, you know, perishable turkey patties in a cardboard box, packing <laughs> it with dry ice and putting it in the mail. And uh, that's not economically feasible for the size of her company. Uh, right. So for that reason, they were sending a lot of people to their website, which was, you know, really pretty and had, you know, nutrition information about burger patties, but not a whole lot more than that. And um, she said, well, if there was just a way that we could get this item into retail shopping carts online, 
uh, that would be a game changer for us. And the light bulb went off for me. And uh, that's kind of where the story uh, began for Fair Commerce. <laughs> awesome. And it's great to hear the, the start. And I'm always curious then when you go from that idea to, okay, let's make an actual company. What did you think about in terms of what the initial version of this was even going to be? Oh my gosh. So uh, again, I gave you the very quick overview, kind of, <laughs> I guess, mo maybe more like talking about the problem and how we're going about accomplishing the solution. But the yeah. amount that the product itself has changed over the last year and a half or so, which is how long we've been around, has been tremendous. Uh, our first idea was, uh, let's put a shopping cart on um, uh, consumer packaged goods websites themselves. So if you imagine going to pepsi.com, and having a little shopping cart that allows you to fill up um, you know, your cart with Pepsi products, and then using a retailer in your area to actually uh, deliver the Pepsi products to your doorstep or have it available to pick up at the store, that was sort of version number, I guess we'll call it zero, of uh, <laughs> what we were going to try to build. What we quickly realized there was that um, when most retailers have a $50 order minimum, you'd have to buy a whole lot of Pepsi uh, on <laughs> Pepsi.com to get above that yep. order minimum. Um, so we started thinking to ourselves, okay, you know, what are better ways to accomplish this? And we eventually arrived on kind of a deep linked, so to speak, approach into retailer shopping carts themselves as opposed to trying to reinvent the wheel. Uh, that's just one anecdote of, um, you know, I think Alex and I consider ourselves, Alex is my co-founder, uh, to consider ourselves to be on generation seven or eight of the <laughs> solution. Uh, but this one really seems to have hit home and, uh, you know, has had great response on both sides of the aisle with uh, consumer packaged goods companies and retailers alike. Yeah. And with that too, then on that note, take us through how you think about the iterations. How are you getting the feedback from, from customers to decide how you change the product? Yeah. Um, so I guess you know, to give a little bit of a teaser to, you know, stuff that we'll probably cover later on in the podcast. Yeah. I think I made every mistake in the book uh, with my first business as far as um, kind of trying to build something in a vacuum. It took us nine months to build our product uh, for uh, my first company, Eat Street, uh, before we got it in front of a single restaurant or a single diner. Um, that was definitely a uh, <laughs> learning experience for us. Sure. Um, because uh, I guess in 2009, also the Bible of the lean startup wasn't as necessarily in the front of all of our minds as it is now in 2020. But we yeah. found out that we had built a bunch of stuff that people didn't really love or that people didn't really need. Uh, so this time around, it's been like uh, grab the ear of an insider or an industry expert the whole way through the building process, try to get as many meetings with potential customers, but call them learning meetings and look for advice as possible. And basically just keep on coming back and saying, hey, you know, have we identified the correct problem? And the answer to that was always more or less yes. Have we identified a viable solution? And I'd say for versions one through six, the answer to that was like a polite no. And then for version number seven, it was like, holy crap, this is actually really awesome. So uh, having those conversations, as long as you have an audience who's willing to indulge you over the course of several iterations, because you're trying to solve a problem that they care deeply about that will make their lives a lot easier if solved. Um, we have some folks, you know, that we probably talked to no less than 20 or 30 times over the course of um, our numerous pivots looking for product market fit with this new business. Yeah. And with that, Eric, then what are some of those questions you're asking or 
what are some of the goals I guess you're you're trying to accomplish from those from those early conversations too? Yeah, I'd say that it, you know there's kind of a variety here. Uh, the simplest question is again understanding the problem itself and. I mean, at this point, there's so much startup and business related, or business building related content out there that uh, it's almost impossible to quote anything without having it sound like a cliche because, you know, I mean, uh, a <laughs> lot of people, you know, yeah. know these things at this point. But uh, the first one is, uh, you know, falling in love with the problem and not necessarily the solution. But even that is kind of like step two, because first of all, you have to identify a problem that you're in love with that the people that you're going to sell to also really want solved. So uh, I would say, you know, the core of every conversation has always been, hey, are we thinking about this problem correctly? Is this even something that you need a solution for? And um, again, thankfully, uh, you know, that usually came back as a thumbs up even from day one. But then it came to, hey, you know, in a lot of ways, you're the expert. I haven't had a career in retail or consumer packaged goods up until the last year and a half or so. You know, what efforts have you seen that are similar to the solution that we're building right now? And where have the pitfalls been? And where are the pain points? And how could we, uh, you know, basically get past that and accomplish, uh, you know, a solution by inventing something completely new or applying a fresh perspective and some innovation to the problem. And um, so the question that we're always asking is more or less like, did we get it? And um, in a lot of cases also, even talking to experts, uh, their opinion is going to still be kind of a subjective thing. So uh, simultaneous to having conversations with experts, we've done a lot of actual testing you know, be that small pilots uh, in the earlier days working with retailers and uh, CPG companies, or even in some cases, actually like funding campaigns ourselves that drive business through our funnel that links into these retailer shopping carts um, and yep. observing results. So it's been like a happy blend between like some very, very rudimentary analytic, uh, you know, kind of measuring of whether or not our solution seems to resonate. And then going to the true experts who are very familiar with the problem and asking them, like, hey, is this a problem that, or, you know, is this a solution that you think is viable? Yeah. And that's something that some, with you mentioned that all, the, all like kind of the research side of it and like getting to the, what is the problem? Okay. For who is this the actual right solution? I think that's something people gloss over. As you mentioned, you made that same mistake with each tree early on. This is something people typically kind of gloss over while they're building something because they just want to keep building it. Like, oh, I'm going to build this really cool thing and then just show it to people. Going back to each street, you'd mentioned kind of the first nine months you just built it. I want to talk about Eat Street, and then we'll come. We'll be back and forth a bit, so bear with us, audience. Uh, so Eat Street, then let's go to Eat Street. How did Eat Street get started? Yeah, so jeez, uh, uh, <laughs> it feels like a lifetime ago. I'll buy you some time. So in 2009, 11 years ago, uh, and you built obviously a really great company with Eat Street. Uh, yeah, I'm just curious as to like even the beginning of where the idea itself uh, came from. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I, I. Grew up in Milwaukee. I guess I'm uh, rewinding to '88 here. That's a little bit, uh, you know, <laughs> even further back than uh, 2009. But I grew up in Milwaukee, and then I went to school in Madison uh, for uh, college. And uh, in 2009, I actually, uh, probably like a lot of uh, college sophomores, was living on my own for the first time. I had been in the dorms the year before. 
uh, and uh, did not enjoy cooking at all, which I think is something that uh, is, you know, somewhat pervasive amongst uh, 20-year-old dudes in particular. Uh, So I uh, found myself uh, ordering out from a lot of restaurants, and uh, they kind of had this uh, universal problem of really crappy online ordering quality or no online ordering at all. Now, obviously, a lot has changed in the last 11 years. Today, you have pervasive platforms like Grubhub and DoorDash, especially in major cities. But in 2009, it was kind of like a choice between using some really, really old players, like talk about being founded in the 90s, none of which exist anymore, um, or uh, using more of a generic solution for an online shopping cart to provide a restaurant with online ordering. What I'm talking about there is like, Yahoo used to have a shopping cart that I'm pretty sure that Shopify just like ate up entirely, but it was like <laughs> a very low quality, you know, probably meant more to sell like, uh, I, I don't know, like crafts or DVDs or something than, uh, you know, really actually food. And a lot of restaurants were like building their online ordering on top of that for lack of a better option. So uh, I had ordered a sub in 2009 from one of my favorite restaurants. I had done it online. And uh, when uh, the person showed up with my food, he said they had, you know, overcharged me because the uh, subtotal was incorrect in their online ordering. He said, you know, some of the toppings might be wrong because it was kind of hard to tell what the online ordering was actually saying. And it just got the wheels turning. And I was like, oh, my gosh, like, you know. Somebody's going to solve this problem, <laughs> so why not us? And so, yeah. uh, you know, was able to go back, talk to two of my closest friends, um, reach back out to that sub restaurant who became our first client and basically, you know, started with a simpler value proposition, just like, hey, can we build you a website to accept orders online? And from there, recognize that putting all of the restaurants in Madison on a single website uh, would give a whole lot of uh, diner choice, uh, which would improve, you know, the user experience for people who, you know, didn't even necessarily know what they wanted to eat. They were just hungry um, and uh, put that all in kind of one centralized hub. So today uh, that company, you know, resembles in large part like Grubhub and DoorDash and several of the others. Um, However, it's focused mostly on uh, towns of anywhere between 25,000, and a million residents. So uh, you're looking at smaller towns across the Midwest, where uh, you know we are by and large uh, the uh, the market leader in the cities that we're in. Uh, they just happen to uh, instead of uh, Los Angeles, California, be Oshkosh, Wisconsin. So that's uh, that's the company you know as it turned out and evolved over the years. Yeah, and with that strategy going into those markets, was that always part of the plan of let's let's target these kind of a little bit smaller markets? Because uh, I, I remember hearing that a while ago, and I was always curious to ask about that. Yeah, I'd say that uh, it was kind of like happy serendipity that we started in a smaller market. Uh, Madison has about a quarter million residents, and uh, there are kind of two uh, takeaways that we had in Madison. Uh, the first was um, that. Uh, even if population was small, if uh, the frequency with which people order their food is really high, that can obviously offset a smaller population. So Madison being home to a uh, 45,000 student university um, meant that, you know, the average diner at the University of Wisconsin probably orders five to 10 times more often than your average, just like, quote unquote, grown up uh, in you know New York City. I mean, Nobody's, sure. nobody's cooking in their undergrad. So uh, what we really were able to do is get like an addressable audience in terms of revenue 
of, you know, maybe a city with a million and a half people, even though we were in a town of 250,000. So that was kind of like the first thing that we realized. The second, though, was uh, the fact that, um, you know, totally unbeknownst to us when we got the company going, uh, we literally didn't know of the existence of competition when we started. Um, but as we became more and more uh, savvy and aware of that, we recognized, hey, you know, we could go to Chicago, we could go to L.A., we could go to New York, but we're just going to get outgunned. And uh, there's yeah. no way that, you know, our uh, ability to acquire diners is going to exceed or cut into the market share of our better funded competition. However, again, just because we actually know this like kind of hidden secret about Madison, being a very profitable market for us, what other cities out there look a lot like Madison and don't have competition. And that's what led us to that strategy. Yeah. And it's such a genius strategy. I mean, it obviously makes sense how you got to it with starting in Madison and kind of being aware of that. And now you're just even going off of like LinkedIn, like thousands of restaurants and a hundred plus markets uh, all over. Take me through then that growth. So you, you start this company, you have this idea from a bad experience, like, oh, let's build a company. What were some of the levers you pulled then to grow this into that thousands of restaurants? It was, it was I mean, it's at now. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks for asking. Uh, so the first thing that I would acknowledge, and I alluded to it earlier, is that we, we made a lot of mistakes. Um, and uh, I'm sure we're going to make a lot of mistakes with Pair Commerce too. Uh, just different mistakes, but uh, we uh, we launched the website uh, in February of 2010, and uh, candidly, we had crickets. I think the first day we got a lot of our friends to order, so we had um, I don't know something in the neighborhood of 50 transactions go through uh, to our list of 10 restaurants, which like a five order day for restaurants, especially back then, uh, is great. Um, However, yeah. uh, on day two, all of our friends had, uh, you know, just ordered out the day before. So everybody <laughs> cooked. And I think we had like three transactions. And that was the day where it was like, oh, crap. Like our yeah. um, focus, our value proposition, our messaging to diners when we launched was that um, it was going to be cheaper um, than um, a lot of the alternatives because, you know, I referenced those legacy companies from the 90s that built online ordering um, in, uh, you know, and were used by several companies in Madison. Uh, that company in particular, the number one one that I'm thinking of was uh, charging like a 25 cent service fee. Um, and uh, we were going out to basically actually launch our company on the premise that like, hey, if you order through us, it's absolutely free. You as a diner don't have to pay a service fee to anybody. Um, that just turned out to not be anywhere near compelling enough to build a business off of. <laughs> And, um, you know, in hindsight, if we had talked to more diners, I think we'd have a much better idea um, going into it that that wasn't going to be the correct marketing message. Um, so uh, just to be clear, it was crickets for the first nine months. Um, in uh, September of 2010 is really when the business started taking off. And again, so one thing that I always think about is like we've tried to institutionalize the idea of how to build a successful startup. Um, and that's what uh, the Lean Startup tries to do. Um, and there's, you know, about a hundred other books and resources. And you have accelerators like Y Combinator, Techstars, and Generator, who are basically trying to teach a playbook as well. And while I buy into that premise, uh, very much so, because there's a lot of low-hanging fruit uh, that, you know, you can bring a founder up to speed on. Um, and, you know, prevent them from making easily uh, preventable mistakes. There's also an aspect of, um, 
like if there was a conventional way to be successful in this business, then uh, everybody would do it, and then it wouldn't be um, innovation anymore. I mean, yep. it, like the very definition of a startup is a whole lot of unknowns, and uh, for that reason, every company's growth strategy can, should, and will be different if they're going to do outsized successful stuff. You can't do regular stuff and expect exceptional success. Uh, you have to do uh, weird stuff and hope for exceptional success. So uh, <laughs> that was a little bit of a philosophical side, but that's all to say in September of 2009, uh, we decided that we were going to partner with an Asian restaurant in Madison, uh, September of 2010. Um, and uh, we were going to give away uh, free General So's chicken if you ordered it online through us. And um, up until then, I think our average uh, transactions per day had been somewhere between 10 and 20 transactions, which is really, you know, a totally unacceptably low number. Uh, as a frame of reference at the time, we made about a dollar per transaction. So you had three people who were working, you know, uh, 40 hours a week each on this project. And, yeah. uh, you know, all in probably making, uh, you know, $30 a head per week. Um, <laughs> we went from, uh, it, with that free food giveaway, um, we uh, went from uh, that 10 to 20 transactions a day to like 300 transactions, like overnight. Jeez. And um, <laughs> it led to some absolute craziness. Like the restaurant was running out of food. So we were making runs to local grocery stores to buy them more eggs. Oh my goodness. Um, and um, we, uh, believe it or not, at the time had been sending uh, orders to the restaurant who would then take it and make the food um, through fax machines of <laughs> all things. Um, and that was kind of the predominant standard in 2010. Um, we were, uh, you know, getting so backlogged on their fax machine because it takes about two minutes to re receive a fax. I mean, fun facts that nobody should know, but somehow, somehow. I along the way. <laughs> Yeah, uh, so uh, it would take about two minutes to receive a single fax. So when you're getting five to ten orders a minute, uh, you can just do the math and see that they're going to get like incredibly backlogged. Uh, so we uh, actually just like on the fly um, programmed out uh, the ability to send orders to the restaurant via email. The restaurant didn't have a uh, smartphone or a computer in their restaurant. Again, this is 2009, the beginning of the iPhone, and uh, the restaurant didn't have internet, so they had no computer. So we then ran to the Verizon store, bought a hotspot, and uh, went home, uh, grabbed a printer, came into the restaurant, and were like, you know, printing out orders as fast as they were coming in off of my inbox, running them back to the kitchen, you know, running back, refreshing, printing out more orders. Uh, and, uh, you know, just like doing that as an effort to help the restaurant keep up with their volume. Uh, the last thing that I'll share is the restaurant was way understaffed in terms of delivery drivers. At the time, we didn't deliver our own food, although that changed. And today, Eat Street does have over 2,000 mm, delivery drivers. Yeah. Um, but in 2010, uh, it was on the restaurant to, you know, kind of do the traditional Pizza Hut thing where like they'd have their own drivers who drop off the food. However, at you know 300 orders a day, uh, that wasn't nearly um, enough drivers uh, to keep up with the demand. So you know, I went back to my college fraternity. We had friends from the dorms, mutual you know overlap between the three founders. We were just calling and texting everybody, and we were like, "Hey, you know, if I pay you 100 bucks, or if I get you a case of beer, like I will owe you an unnamed favor in the future, like naming of my firstborn <laughs> child. Like, will you please, please, please come in and deliver?" General Tso's chicken for us today. And, uh, you know, that was definitely super illegal because we didn't have any insurance <laughs> on any of them. But, uh, you know, say la vie. 
So anyways, all of this is just a side note to say uh, the book of conventional startup wisdom says don't give away free stuff. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of really good reasons why uh, conventional wisdom would say that. Uh, for us, that was the lucky break that we needed to basically just get a critical number of users onto the platform where like network effects started playing out and people started like telling other people on their floor and like RAs in the dorms would, uh, you know, bring new people in uh, freshman era and say like, here's a list of websites you should know about in Madison, Wisconsin, you know, go to Badger Bites, which was the name of our company at the time. Uh, if you want to order out. And so uh, it seeded the network in a way that, yeah, you know, I mean, was the lifetime value really justified out of all of those uh, diners? Probably not. <laughs> uh, was it a good way to take our business from basically non-existent to existent? Absolutely. After the uh, promotion was done, we were doing, you know, an average of 100 orders a day. And, you know, the rest was kind of history. Wow. So that's the... Yeah, that's the super early. Then over the course of the next few years, I mean, it was kind of rinse and repeat. I'm like very generalizing now, but like raised about uh, 50 million in venture capital over the course of the next like six years, just did that same strategy, expanded to new markets, gradually, you know, became uh, focused on being viewed as less of a deal site. So kind of like scale back some of the individual tactics, but uh, it, uh, you know, just started you know kind of like with this original on the ground strategy and uh the uh, remarkable how similar uh that state of that's incredible i've probably given way too long no no i love that's the whole point man (laughs) that's the whole point eric that's why i wanted to chat about it and that's so interesting to hear going from essentially 10 to 20 to like 100 plus like 10x from one promotion and kind of getting it right uh and then going then it just like you said network effects it takes off and then expanding from there one of the things i definitely want to talk about with each street Looking at new markets, how did you approach new markets and expanding uh, while you're at Eat Street? Yeah, uh, so, you know, I wish that I could say that there was more of a science to it than there was, especially in the early days. In the later days, uh, we had a whole, you know, kind of like data science and research team who had, you know, pretty impressive uh, modeling going on to identify like which markets felt like the uh, the best based on, you know, environmental factors such as the size of, you know, the universities, the student bodies, uh, weather, I mean, just about like anything and everything that you could take into account. But in the early days, it was just kind of like, um, you know, an afternoon of Googling around for, you know, I think we literally just looked up like cities in the Midwest, lopped off Chicago, lopped off Minneapolis, lopped off, I think, it, like Milwaukee, Detroit, <laughs> I mean, all of the big ones. And then just, you know, started, you know, probably at uh, the size of the half a million uh, population cities, just Googling, like, order food from St. Cloud, Minnesota, order food from Oshkosh, Wisconsin, order food from DeKalb, Mm. Illinois. And uh, what we saw uh, was either, hey, you know, this, uh, this town doesn't have a lot of restaurants or, oh, this town is already, like, you know, using a competitor such as Grubhub. Or this town has a lot of restaurants and nobody's gone here yet. And after that, it was like, uh, you know, book a legitimate two-star hotel um, and uh, get on the road and, uh, you know, stay there for like two or three weeks, see how many restaurants we could sign up. And uh, then, uh, you know, usually hire an intern for boots on the ground promotion, uh, find some growth hacky ways to uh, get the word out as uh, cost-effectively as possible oftentimes using like email listservs 
Um, and uh, that was sort of the playbook to new market launch and even new market prospecting. Again, obviously got like more yeah. sophisticated over the years, but the first 15 markets was nothing more complicated than that. That's amazing. And with that, what was the pitch to get these uh, businesses on the platform then? I think it was uh, the fact that, uh, you know, there were uh, it, the great thing was we were like just riding like a technological wave. Like uh, you had diners who, in the most case, were students, literally asking restaurants on a daily basis, like, "Hey, can I order from you guys online?" And oftentimes the answer would be no. If the answer was yes, then oftentimes it was like that Yahoo shopping cart that I talked about earlier, and they'd say, "Yeah, you can, but like I hate it. Like it's a real <laughs> pain in the butt." And so we were coming in and saying, you know, I mean, actually to the conversation plates earlier about pair commerce, like we have a solution to the problem that you're facing. Your diners want to order their food online and we've made it easy for them. And we've also made it easy for you. Uh, so it was, you know, just kind of like serendipity to be building a company uh, in these markets at the right time where like the restaurants were actively looking for a solution. And I think in a lot of cases, uh, again, a company kind of like the product sells itself as long as you've timed the market rate and you've found uh, people who are, you know, like uh, really looking for a solution to the problem that, uh, you know, you're coming in and saying like, hey, I've got it. Yeah. And, and with that then, so that, yeah, there's so much, so many questions I have around, around everything with it. Uh, one thing I actually yeah. want to go back to with it, because uh, we haven't really discussed it, you kind of gloss over raising almost $50 million and uh, it's hard to gloss mm -hmm. over that. At what point did you decide that you needed funding for this and how would, how did that process go for you? Yeah. Uh, so um, we called, uh, we called this a small business at first, which is funny. Like we didn't even call ourselves a startup. In fact, I mean, like straight up, um, I don't even think that we knew like the word startup in 2009. <laughs> uh, also in 2009, being in a startup was not as cool and as prevalent. Much as different. Today. Much different. Yeah. yeah. So uh, we originally thought, I mean, candidly, like I don't even think that any of us had like the intention of uh, doing this uh, for a living um, after graduation. Uh, we built this company kind of with the goal of like padding our resume so that maybe we could get a job at Google or Facebook or something. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it took off in a way that we were, you know, actually like the most surprised perhaps of all about. Um, and uh, so that led us to, you know, okay, if we're in this for the long run, like what are our options on the table? And uh, the first thing that uh, happened for us is we actually won the University of Wisconsin student business play competition uh, in uh, our senior year, which was a grand prize of uh, $10,000, which was the first outside money that went into the business. Actually, that's not true. Our parents gave us like a thousand bucks each, which was wonderful. Very like, helpful. In the very early yeah. days. Uh, but uh, the first, uh, yeah, real outside money uh, from people that we didn't know who weren't, uh, you know, sharing our last names uh, were uh, this business plan competition. A lot of the judges in the business plan competition said, hey, you guys really have to think about raising money. And uh, to us, you know, we didn't know what it would be like having investors. Again, these stories were a lot less shared back then. It was like, well, are these people going to buy our company? Like, what, what's the deal with, you know, investors and private companies in the first place? And, um, you know, just like educated ourselves, got more familiar and then had the uh, good fortune of running into the folks at Generator, which is a, uh, you know, top, I think it's like five or six nationally ranked startup accelerator. There are rankings for these things. 
um, based <laughs> in Wisconsin that was uh, at the time just getting off the ground. So, I mean, they themselves were a startup very similar, you know, to us. And uh, we actually became their first investment just because of a great intro, a great coffee conversation. And uh, the fact that we felt like there was just going to be kind of like a mutual fit between us and that organization. So uh, they put in a hundred grand and then uh, their backgrounds and basically the stated goal of practically every startup accelerator is like help a business thrive first. The question is, how do you help a business thrive? Well, one of the biggest ways that accelerators can add value is usually uh, introducing folks to downstream investors. So once we had Generator on our side, they became in a lot of ways, almost like the deal hunters in the early days for like, who's interested in an investment in a fast growing uh, food ordering company. Yeah. And thankfully uh, we had, uh, you know, folks who were very interested in that uh, come to the table, which allowed us to put together a seed round and then a series A. We got a board of directors at the Series A level. They kind of replaced Generator for being those folks who helped us find that next round of capital. And then, uh, you know, just very similar, actually, to like CD New Markets. It's like hitting the streets and looking around, uh, <laughs> you know, like just like reach outs, um, you know, playing off like a network, looking for who you have in common with folks on LinkedIn. And, you know, that became a big part of our fundraising strategy over the years. I should also carve out at this point that, uh, you know, I was in the room for the majority of the pitches, but I really owe all of that success to Eat Street's uh, present day still CEO. He was the CEO from day one and our co-founder, uh, Matt Howard, yeah. who, uh, you know, definitely, uh, you know, turned fundraising into quite the art. And it was fun to be an active participant, but also watch <laughs> his mastery of uh, being able to, you know, kind of build those networks and uh, do a really good job at it. Well, to that point, and from, you know, being in the room for those and understanding like how he was doing it well, like what would you tell people around fundraising that would be most helpful? I mean, you're, you mentioned some of it already, but is there anything else that as people are thinking about fundraising for their company, things they should either think about or things that would be helpful for others? Yeah. Um, I think the number one thing is uh, in a lot of ways, especially if you're early on and you don't have like a super rigorous uh, sort of, um, you know, analytics or results to provide back to somebody. The, the number one goal is uh, be memorable and uh, paint a, uh, a really, really big opportunity. And these are not exactly hot takes. But, uh, you know, the memorable side is probably like the more interesting of the two, because, again, everybody knows, like, paint the market opportunity to be a billion dollars, show a really good plan of how you're going to get there. You know, I mean, you can Google out what a good pitch deck looks like and uh, the results are going to be great. Um, the uh, memorability piece is probably the uh, the one that, uh, you know, I can add the most to the conversation with um, in the early days, if you're talking to angels or early stage VCs. Again, for, for, for lack of that uh, traction, uh, the best thing you can do is really actually make an impression because these people do see a lot of startups. Right. So, uh, you know, in the case of Eat Street, um, in the case actually even of like my later ventures where like I've been the primary fundraiser, um, it's always come down to, uh, you know, come in with a lot of knowledge of the audience so that you can like reference, you know, shared experience or other things that, you know, your average person who's pitching them probably didn't take the time to really educate themselves about. And in some ways, I mean, I'm not suggesting like be a clown or like in any ways demean yourself, but like 
do something that actually really will leave an impression. And for us, uh, building the company out of Wisconsin, there's a beer called Spotted Cow that's only available in the state of Wisconsin. <laughs> I miss it so much, Most, by the way. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> delicious. Uh, the majority of investors that we pitched were outside of the state of Wisconsin. So what we would do is pack an entire suitcase full of Spotted Cow if we were going out to the Bay Area. And anybody and everybody that we got a meeting with, we'd leave a six pack of this like legendary Wisconsin beer with. And it's like, okay, you know, when somebody like goes home at night and they're like, let me think about the conversations I had today with investment opportunities. It helps when there's a six pack in their hand of spotted cow. That's genius. Uh, just to like <laughs> even stick above the fray. Like, uh, so again, I mean, I'm not suggesting pulling any elaborate stunts or anything like that, but like do something that like will significantly like be like, Oh, those are the Wisconsin guys. or those are the spotted cow guys. So those are like the, the, whatever it ends up being. That's like the, uh, I don't know, I guess kind of like, uh, that's the social engineering side to fundraising that I found to be very successful. Uh, as far as, yeah, building a great pitch deck, look up the version from Y Combinator, Generator, or Techstars, you'll be off to a really good start. Yeah, and that that's available for people. And that's something that I'm, anyone needs to do the research, especially if they're trying to raise. And that stuff's kind of easy to find. I do like God, being memorable. That's not really talked about as much. And even like that type of thing with the six pack, I think it's genius. Uh, it'd be hilarious if you now see every pitch deck, every pitch they have six pack from their local uh, brewery, wherever people are uh, as people listen to this. But um, I think that's genius as a way to fundraise. And then I, go ahead. I, I was going to say, I give you a 0% chance that he remembers this. I give you a 0% chance that he remembers even talking to us. But uh, Matt, Alex and I, the co-founders, uh, have the unique uh, prestige of having given Jack Dorsey of Twitter and Square <laughs> a uh, cheese head, uh, oh which he God. did not put on uh, because uh, his hair was immaculate. <laughs> I, think he th- I think he thought I think he thought it was a little bit weird, to be honest. Uh, that one, I also said, don't be a clown. Uh, I would probably take that <laughs> moment back if I could. But at the same time, you know, I get to die saying that I gave Jack Dorsey a t- cheese head, which is you know, was, more than most people. Was that a pitch you were giving to or What was the context around that? Yeah, we were looking at potentially partnering the square all the way back in 2012. So, uh, you know, awesome. kind of on the heels of that conversation. We only talked to Jack for about 15 or 20 minutes. Uh, but uh, yeah. <laughs> It was it was a cool experience. Uh, it ended up like not playing out. We didn't end up partnering with them. Actually, they bought Caviar shortly thereafter. But uh, yep. you know, still, uh, I'm sure that Cheesehead is you know sitting in a storage container in a landfill somewhere. But uh, <laughs> you know, we we managed to pass it off. Amazing! I love the effort, Eric. And one thing I'm wondering too with Eat Street then. Transitioning then from you being at Eat Street to you being at Generator, what what happened there? I'm curious as to how how that went because I also want to talk about Generator. Yeah, absolutely. So um, after eight years at Eat Street, uh, my number one goal has always been like you know just continue to learn basically, and uh, not to say that I wasn't learning at Eat Street, but what we had uh, you know really kind of achieved was. Uh, going from a uh, company that was like really bringing new products into the market to a company that was doubling down on things like profitability, um, a very measured analytical expansion, yep. and uh, had a uh, real big team. So I think at the time that I left, you know, we were up to almost 150 full-time employees, and that for me uh, was just not in line with the kind of skills that I was trying to hone. Um, you know, and I talked about the fact that Matt was the one who had raised uh, the majority of the money in the past, but I kind of thought, you know, hey, uh, an opportunity was like, first of all, like I knew that Eat Street wasn't going to be my last startup. 
Um, so an opportunity to kind of get out there and learn new skills, learn from people and, uh, you know, increase the breadth of my experience as opposed to, you know, cranking away at really interesting, really difficult, but ultimately like not necessarily like uh, personal development enhancing problems. Like for instance, like reducing delivery time by an average of a minute, 30 seconds for a fleet of drivers, which is an awesome problem if you're a statistician, um, but isn't necessarily just like the professional direction that I, you know, intended my career to go and uh, led me to, you know, take a step back from uh, that, uh, you know, experience and left on super good terms with my co-founders, moved up to the Twin Cities um, in Minnesota and uh, basically uh, was then approached by our earliest investors uh, at Generator to uh, open up their first office outside of uh, the two offices that they had when they started the business, which were Madison and uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, so I jumped on the opportunity because uh, Generator is, you know, among many things that it provides, it provides capital to companies. So this was a chance to be an investor on the other side of the table, uh, yeah. kind of learn the tricks of the trade that way. And then also exchange ideas with uh, super brilliant people, uh, you know, in the way of like my coworkers and also in the way of the companies that we supported, um, which would allow me to learn a bunch again and be ready for my next adventure. So I, I jumped into Generator knowing uh, full well and communicating out to, uh, you know, the folks who hired me at Generator uh, that uh, I would be there for about two years. And then after that, I was going to go build something new. However, uh, they were happy to have me. I was excited to be there. And uh, it made for an awesome kind of layover uh, two years before uh, I started Bear Commerce. Yeah. And that generator then, take me through like, what was your role? What were you kind of doing day to day there? Yeah. So, uh, gosh, talk about like kind of a trial by fire. <laughs> um, I started uh, actually super ironically because uh, the first day that we took an order on Eat Street was February 1st, uh, 2010. I started um, Generator on February 1st, uh, 2017. Um, so uh, February 1st seems to be a recurring theme for some reason for me. <laughs> uh, but uh when when I started, I was the first and only employee in uh, the Twin Cities, and uh, the guys at Generator said, "Hey, you know, you've always probably thought of the money that you've raised at Eat Street as being almost like magic money. It's like where does it come from?" And like I had a general idea, but like a very rudimentary idea of how VC worked. But uh, for you know a point of reference, like that money doesn't just like you know, appear out of nowhere. Somebody else has to trust VCs with large sums of right, money exactly. and then go ahead and deploy it. Uh, so the folks at Generator said, you know, our goal uh, in market expansion uh, is to also raise that money mostly locally. Um, so you're going to have to go out and fundraise so that you build a network of uh, sources of capital in the Twin Cities that then uh, it's kind of a double-edged sword. Like we, we get their money and then we also um, in the process kind of bring them into the family, so to speak, so that they can provide mentorship to the companies who go through our startup accelerator. So I was tasked on day one with raising um, like a million uh, five um, for investment capital for the companies. Um, and Eat Street was just coming off the heels of a $20 million raise so I thought, okay, you know, I mean, I don't know anybody in the Twin Cities, but like a million five, I should be able to accomplish that. Uh, that actually ended up being one of the hardest races of my life. I mean, by far, because I didn't know anybody. And because for the most part, um, you know, the pitch of like, hey, let me manage your money is a lot different than like, 
hey, I've got a really exciting business. And um, I, uh, you know, am presenting this opportunity to you directly. I mean, a lot of people who angel invest um, are, uh, you know, more pumped up about just like building relationships with companies than anything else. So it like kind of removes the fun to give that money to a middleman to deploy instead. Uh, so uh, definitely, uh, you know, just like had to jump headfirst into uh, sourcing conversations I mean, I like crashed a lunch at the University of St. Thomas, which is a local private school here uh, for successful entrepreneurs. I said they lost my name tag. Um, I sat at a table, got a couple meetings out of uh, that lunch with uh, local angel investors, uh, you know, talked to them, got like one or two checks out of it, um, asked them who else I should be talking to. And over the course of the next uh, six months or so, I think I looked it up on my Google calendar. I had 180 meetings uh, oh, pitching wow. the generator fund to, you know, local high net worth individuals, different like institutions that were willing to write like smaller checks um, and basically, you know, raised one and a half million dollars and basically twenty five thousand dollar chunks. Um, and uh, so that was, you know, phase one and the most daunting phase of my entire time at generator. Having closed all the money, then we immediately transitioned into um, putting together a class of five startups to go through our 12-week boot camp, um, investing that uh, cash into those startups, and then just doing everything that I could to be a great partner and uh, roll up my sleeves and try to make these startups as successful as possible. So uh, that was, you know, kind of, and then after one cohort, rinse and repeat and do it again a year later. So that was, you know, it was a very, very action-packed two years at Generator that started with me raising my first capital without Matt, you know, yeah. really kind of leading the way. And then, uh, you know, expanded into, you know, helping support companies and, uh, you know, getting to know and support some uh, really exceptional founders. And some of these companies are doing incredibly well today. That's great. And using that as kind of a transition then into back into Pair, coming full circle with the fundraising side of it, how did you approach that for Pair Commerce after having gone through it now, you know, with Generator, with Eat Street and kind of uh, seeing that from a little bit uh, from afar of, of sorts at Eat Street, but now with, with Pair, how did you approach that with the company? Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I eat my own dog food for starters because I uh, went through a generator affiliated program with Pair right when we launched the company. It's called the Brandery. It's in Cincinnati. It focuses on uh, retail and uh, commerce sort of uh, startup companies. So, like, we're a really good fit for them. Um, and I, again, one of the value propositions that generator can offer is, you know, helping get you in front of a lot of investors. So, I'm thankful to them actually on the other side of the table for helping me fundraise um you know out um our first significant round we've raised a million dollars to date um by helping facilitate uh you know kind of those intros at the end of the day though um i'll say uh whereas the uh generator fund uh raising was certainly you know one of the more daunting challenges in my career I'm very grateful for the fact that uh, raising money for pair was actually very easy this time around. And it's because, you know, and I'm very thankful for this. I don't, I don't lose uh, sight of this, but like being a repeat founder, um, you know, having uh, basically like these connections because they were professional necessities for both of my roles at Eat Street and Generator um, and, you know, having a great working relationship with a lot of the Midwest uh, angel and VC community just basically led to uh, 
you know, a high level of interest in our first round. So all in, I think we closed the round in about a month from the moment that we first officially started pitching. We got, you know, a term sheet or two in the first week, um, which uh, Alex and I, my co-founder, who, by the way, was my co-founder back at Eat Street. Uh, so two of the three of us from the Eat Street days are, you know, working together on a pair project. Yeah. Um, Alex and I laugh about the fact that uh, there is absolutely no doubt that this was kind of like our get out of jail free card uh, when it <laughs> comes to uh, fundraising. And that, uh, you know, the expectations are here now that uh, we do something with that money. And of uh, so we'll be held to a higher standard uh, the next time that we hit the streets and try to start going out and like raising something. But uh, for the first time, uh, raising with Paracommerce, basically we cashed in on a decade of goodwill across the Midwest investor community. And, uh, you know, it was great because it allowed us to focus on the stuff that really matters, which is like growing the business. Uh, so um, just being able to, you know, close something quick, get that money in the bank account and go back to, you know, actually the most important part of building a company, which is building a company <laughs> was, uh, you know, certainly like a big blessing for us. Yeah. And I want to just like put this in bold per se, 10 years of building goodwill relationships and everything to make the this round easier and to get that term sheet in a week, uh, just for people to put that in perspective of, you know, set some expectations around, it's going to take a little time to build these relationships, especially yeah. if you don't have them already when you're starting a company. Um, it's something I just want to make sure people understand. And, and what I want to know too is like now, like pair commerce today, like what is kind of the next thing you're working on with, with the business? Yeah. So, uh, we've been cutting our teeth on enterprise sales basically for the last year. So, uh, the nice thing about pairs, like when we close a deal, it is, you know, five, six or seven, uh, figures in terms of the revenue that it generates for us, Yep. but it takes about a million conversations. So, uh, <laughs> you know. I like to, I'm a, you know, I'm a nerd, like my undergraduate was software engineering. Um, but you talk about like in software engineering, having a pipeline, which is like, if you're in a cafeteria, it's better to have a line in a cafeteria where like, you know, you can have six people who are like simultaneously like dishing up their food from a buffet than having it where like one person goes through the buffet and they wait for the next person to go through the buffet. And right. like there's only one person dishing off at once. What we've done is like packed our buffet line. Uh, so um, I'm, you know, having conversations with retailers and CPGs and in a lot of cases, you know, closing deals on a practically daily basis. But if you actually look at like the thread of, um, you know, oh, who am I talking to on a day? It's like, oh, I talked to this person a month ago. So it's like got to have 30 prospects in the pipeline so that every day of the month, practically, you can have a conversation but then uh, simultaneously recognizing <laughs> that uh, these deals do take time. So the best thing that you can do uh, to really build like significant momentum is like widen the top of your funnel and be in a constant state of, uh, you know, basically like filling uh, because these deals are not going to happen overnight. So that's been, you know, by, by and large, uh, you know, our biggest focus uh, the team is up to uh, four now. It's myself, Alex, and the two guys on uh, business development who we're really happy to have. Um, and uh, yeah, that's, you know, just day in and day out. It's a lot of just prospecting, setting up a first call, then having a second call, then having a third call, and then eventually getting our way to a deal. 
That's awesome. And one thing I want to definitely touch on here quick before we kind of uh, head off, what have been any uh, useful uh, books for you as you've kind of gone through this? I always love book suggestions. I'm just curious if there are anyone in particular or any a few of them that you've kind of enjoyed through your entrepreneurial journey the last uh, decade. Yeah. Okay. So I'll start off and say uh, that um, I'm kind of a terrible uh, example of somebody to ask that question to because <laughs> Uh, for me, books are actually kind of like my reprieve from work and they're like my escapist. Mm, so like, yep. I read a lot of books, but uh, they are by and large fiction. Um, however, uh, if I did have to point to one book, uh, I really, really like the Blitzscaling book by Reid Hoffman. I think he does a really good job in it. Um, it's important to, and he, he, he has a disclaimer in it um, about... Uh, you know, when it's appropriate to blitz scale and when you, you know, really kind of start putting the practices in that book into place, which for the listeners who haven't read it, uh, that book basically is about, uh, you know, growing quickly, even if it means like sacrificing efficiency. Um, and, uh, that's an appropriate thing to do once your company has hit a certain critical point. Um, I look back at it and think about, you know, the Eat Street stories and what went right and what went wrong. And, you know, there's lots that I wish that we could have done differently that would have followed more in the blitz scaling footprint. Um, it also, you know, I mean, my experience at Eat Street did, you know, incorporate a lot of learnings from that book. It's just important to know when to turn that on because uh, at Pair, we're too early to blitz scale. If we blitz scaled right now, we would actually like probably just blow through all of our money and go out of business. Yeah. Um, but for the companies that have achieved, you know, significant enough traction and a good enough game plan that they know what's working, um, I'd say that that's just absolutely required rating. That's awesome. And I've definitely listened to it. I have the audiobook version. I, yeah, it's 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 very good. But again, the timing is, is super important um, on that end as well. And and Eric, where can people go to learn more about uh, all the things you're working on? Yeah. So, I mean, a good place to start is uh, Pair Commerce, uh, just paircommerce.com. Uh, if you want to connect with me on LinkedIn, um, you know, happy to. Uh, I'm not too good at reading LinkedIn messages. I'll be the first one to say that. So uh, <laughs> the easiest way to actually get in touch with me is uh, Eric, and that's with a C for cool, I guess, uh, at uh, paircommerce.com. Uh, so if you shoot me an email, um, you know, I am more than happy to get in touch with anybody. Awesome. Thank you so much for the time today, Eric. Yeah, absolutely, Justin. It was a really, really great conversation. Thank you for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen. The Weekly Grind, which is my weekly newsletter, comes out every single Friday. You can find it at justgogrind.com slash newsletter. This is filled with tips, tools, and strategies for growing your business. If you want to know how to launch a business, how to grow it, how to get it off the ground, find employees, all these different things. There's a few tips, tools, and strategies every single week I deliver right to you. Justgogrind.com slash newsletter. Check it out. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you in the next episode.